Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Um, I last uh, Sunday, <laughs> I got bit by uh, these yellow jackets. Those things are freaking demons. I hate them things. I don't have no idea what they're doing on the planet, but I'm sure they weren't here before the fall. <laughs> and uh, I got bit ten times, and and uh, I didn't. And so I it was I was up to preach Sunday, and, and Bill and Eric were both out of town. And I, some people are like, "Why did you preach? You guys are just so stubborn." I'm like, "No, I wasn't sick till I woke up Sunday morning, and then there was like not really anybody to pass it to like one hour before I'm." supposed to preach so I preached with 103 fever and people are like that was a great message maybe I preach better when I'm out of my mind <laughs> just had the thought you know when you have to depend on the Lord because you have no other resources like your brain isn't working but uh but I, I was talking about um I, I have this ongoing sense in my life it's not like it's never been there I think all of us know especially us that that preach or lead like, we go through seasons where you just feel an emphasis, right? It's not like you never did it. It's just like it's, just like it's being shouted in your spirit. And I, I felt, and, and I, let me say one more thing before I say that. I, I feel like we, we all play different roles. You know, at times I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a father. I'm always a father, but I mean, at times I'm like step into the role of father. And in my life, at times I'm a prophet. At times I'm a teacher. At times I'm the business leader of Bethel. And I could just like name... 30 or 40 things that I, that, you know, that I have had the privilege of, of being responsible for. And you have those too. You know, it's like we have different things. And at times it feels like the Lord's like, okay, step into this deeper. Like step deep into this place right here. And the last probably, I don't know, six months, I, I felt like the Lord said, I want you to step into your father role. Like step deeper into it. Like I, I want to emphasize your father role. And so I, consequently, I wake up at night and I think of, I think of people, you know, I think of our city. I, I really feel like the Lord is making us a father to this city. And you kind of know when the Lord's shifting what he's doing with you because the burden seems to come first before the vision for me. And I wake at night and I sometimes get up at three or four in the morning and I, I'm up for an hour or two not because I'm so spiritual, just because I can't go to sleep. My mind is just going, and I'm thinking about our city, and I'm thinking about, Lord, how are we going to solve this? And I, I really, and I, I just do the same for our church recently. I just, I, I see um, some places where our culture is going. Um, I'm not speak, spe- speaking specifically of Bethel right now, just uh, broader. Where our culture is going and the concerns that I have, I, it's not like I've never had concerns, and it's not like I've, it's not like we've ever, it's not like the world hasn't always been the world. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what are they, <laughs> sometimes they dream up of some really, like, wow, that was a very creative sin. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> we didn't think of that sin when I was a boy, you know? But, you know, nothing really changes in the world because if you have a sin nature, then of course you sin. So, I mean, it shouldn't surprise any of us. But the way it affects the church uh, does concern me. And, uh, and how, we, how do we respond? Like, how do we teach people? And, and you know, and it seems like um, 
I'm sorry, I'm wandering, I'm kind of, let me say this, tonight I feel like I have a family talk more than a teaching. Well, is that helpful? So you're like, when's he going to get to the teaching? Like, th this, this is the teaching. <laughs> it, it's a family talk. It's going to have some scriptures in it, but it's going to be a lot more like a family talk than a teaching. Um, and so I, I uh, it feels a lot like, um, as believers, we, we kind of go, well, my observation is we either kind of uh, pretend this isn't happening or react. And neither one of them really lead to any kind of forward motion or closure. And when we try to engage culture, sometimes we wait till we're mad or scared. How many know mad or scared are not great motivations? I've done them both. They're just, you know, they make really good preaching. They just don't actually change anybody. And I'm, I feel like, you know, it's, some, sometimes I feel like people just don't really know right from wrong. It's, uh, in our culture, it's kind of not hard to find people who actually don't know that what they're doing is wrong. And, the, you know, we, I said this uh, on Sunday morning, but we live not in the most fatherless generation statistically. We do live in the most fatherless generation statistically in whom our fathers weren't out to war or who did not die in war. In other words, there have been other times in the history of the world where the world was actually more absent of fathers than there is now, but our fathers were either out to war or they were dying in war. Does that make sense? It, in a weird way, it was healthier in the sense that there was a reason why our fathers were gone not because they didn't like us or they didn't want responsibility. So in a weird way, it's a different kind of dysfunction. Are you with me? I mean, it's one thing when I, I'm, you know, I'm seven and I know my father's out fighting for my country. It's another thing when I'm seven and I don't know who my father is. That, both, I have, are, I'm absent of a father, but one... I'm, I really do have a father in the sense that I have a spiritual covering, and probably I'm proud of him. And the other is a very different, it has a very different effect on the psyche of a person, is my point. And, um, and so, some of the things that I think that we learn, you know, my story is very well documented. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, but I would say that my family was probably way more functional than most of society. So some things, I remember, just as an example, I remember my very first date, um, we grew up very poor, so I'd never been in a restaurant. We didn't have restaurants like we have now anyway, but, but the ones we had were, you know, you actually, it was, it was costly, like, I'm sorry, it's just a different culture. So I had actually never been to a pizza parlor, I'd never been to a restaurant, that we had a little, uh, uh, it was called a Dairy Queen, kind of, it wasn't Dairy Queen, but it was like a Dairy Queen down the street. That, that's the only thing I'd ever been in. So when my very first date was Sadie Hawkins' dance. Does anybody know what a Sadie Hawkins dance is? It's where the girl asked the guy, right? So this girl asked me to go out. She's two years. She's a junior, and I'm a freshman. And she asked me to go out. Uh, go, yeah, I know. <laughs> it was actually just a few months before I met Kathy, thank God. Anyway, it was beautiful. She's a really nice girl, and she invited me out, and, and you know, we were going as a group, like three or four or five. Anyway, the point I'm making is the first time I'd ever been in a restaurant. And I remember my mom the night before. You know how you have these little 
Things that you learn, but you, never, you can remember them like they were yesterday. I remember my mom sitting me down at the table and she said, okay, there's going to be more forks and, and knives and spoons and cups. And I'm like, what are all those for? You know, like, just give me a fork and you know, a sharp knife. That's all I need. And mostly I just use my hands anyway. So, you know, if those things were necessary, you know, unless you had oatmeal or something. But, uh, so I remember, so my mother, you know, she like, okay, you know, you start from the outside and you work in and, you know, and I was so nervous. And I remember went to the steakhouse. Now, I know where I went for steak and that place, was, it closed about 15 years ago, but it was open for a long time. It wasn't like a beautiful steakhouse, but when you've never been to one, it's a completely different thing. And so I sat down at the table, and I was really nervous, and there was like eight of us. There was four couples. There was eight of us, and, and, and I was trying to run over my mind like, okay, use the outside one first. You know, don't put your elbows on the table. Take the napkin and put it on your lap. You know, I was like, it was like too much to remember all at once, you know? And then, and then the girl, you know, and then it's like, <laughs> it was like, like we hadn't even got to the dance yet. I was just like, and I, I didn't know how to dance either. So I was like, oh, we got to do that in another two hours. So when I sat down at the table, I was like rehearsing in my mind, like, okay, my mother was like, okay, now don't make sure you do that. I'm like, and I sat down at the table, I hit the knife and it flew up. God is my witness. It flew up over my head and it landed in the guy's table, the plate, a table next to me in his plate. Oh, I didn't really know what to do, so I just like, hey, uh, can I have my knife back? Got my knife, put it back, and of course my girlfriend, she's not really my girlfriend, but my date, you know, she's like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. And about 10 minutes later, I hit my spoon. It had stuff in it. It flew up. Ended up on the floor. I didn't know. I just got up, picked the spoon up, put it back on my plate, just kept using it. Just wondered, you know, it didn't, it didn't even occur to me that night that everybody was like. And my point is, is that I didn't even know how to behave. Like, I had never been to a restaurant before. I didn't know how to behave. My mother had to teach me the simple things of sitting with a young woman and having dinner. Don't talk with your mouth full. All those things I didn't learn until I had my first girlfriend when I was 15. And, and I, I use that analogy to say, I see people going through life and things that you just like, it ought to be obvious, not so obvious. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Communication is one of those things. I want to talk a little bit about communication tonight. And, and I don't know how far we'll get. We'll just see. You know, um, one of the main things about families that you should create a safe place for people to be heard. Let me just say it again. Like family should be a safe place for people to share what's on their heart. Now, obviously with a good attitude, but it's a place that our children learn how to interact with people and they, and they need a safe place to process what the heck's happening out there in that crazy world and I need somebody to talk to I'm having some sometimes crazy thoughts and weird things happen, and I need someone I can, I need a place where I can go, hey, this is happening to me, I'm not sure what to do, I'm really scared, and somebody can interact with me. And sometimes when I get scared, I get angry. Let me start over. How many of you know fear 
I'm just talking about now, we're not on a spiritual level, okay? Fear is one of the worst emotions you can have, and we try to hide it with other things, like rage. Like some people who are in a rage are actually not actually mad, they're just scared. And so sometimes I come to my family with anger, but I'm really not mad, I'm just scared. And I learned really early, I learned really early, because I grew up with a rageaholic, I learned really early, and I went to a very dangerous school in high school, my high school was uh, one-third black, one-third Mexican, and one-third white, which was all great, except for it was during the black power years, and there was riots and guns and shootings at my school, and so we were on lockdown, like what you see, like what we've seen in the last 15 years, that was my school, and we were, were, we were the school that they put all the crazy kids, so... So we're on lockdown all the time, and I was, as a freshman, I can remember just being terrified, you know? I I got beat up five times in school. And so, you know, it's like I learned my first year in high school that if I stayed mad, I wasn't afraid. I just had to stay mad. I just had to stay mad all the time. And if I stayed mad, the emotion of fear would leave because it would be replaced by rage. So you just act crazy all the time, and you realize, like, and then you realize, like, that's probably what most of the school's doing. Everybody's scared, so you just stay mad. And my point is, sometimes kids come home mad because they're scared. And communication, okay, where I'm going is this. That we have to listen from the heart and not from the head is my point. Like, very few people actually get paid to talk like we do. Like, we are professional talkers. I don't mean it in any like, derogatory way. I mean, we get paid to articulate. Most people don't. So we take, we take it's like, I'm saying communication is an art. We learn to take our thoughts, our feelings, the impressions we get from the Lord, and actually put them to words. Most people don't get to do that for a living. So they just say whatever's on their minds. And, and what I'm getting at is that communication is not just about my words, it's about, okay, you said that, but what's really going on inside of you? And so much of communication is, for us older, for us parents, is pressing in to not correct your words. Like, I, 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 um, I had a youth group for uh, five years that was probation kids. Well, they were, started out, I would work with the probation department the first, actually, six months. The, all of my kids were on probation. And then I opened it up, and I had 120 kids, but they were all broken kids. And we played basketball and volleyball, and then we had a halftime, and at halftime, I would teach them life skills. Um, when I first started, I couldn't teach them about Jesus. It, wasn't, it was part of my probation contract with the probation department. He's like, you can teach them principles, but just don't say Jesus a lot, you know? <laughs> don't pop the Bible out, you know? I'm like, you'll get me in trouble. I'm like, okay. So, so um, after that, though, I kind of stayed in the same mode in that I taught them a lot of kingdom stuff, brought Jesus in, but I didn't like just, I didn't just open the Bible and just pour Jesus on them every week. Does that make sense? And my kids use the F word all the time. I mean, the little ones from five years old all the way up, they're like F and this, F and that, F and this. And I bring my, and the, mostly they were angry. And I bring my friends, my Christian friends, to come help me sometimes because there'd be 120 kids and there'd be typically one of me. And I have like volleyball game going on and bas- two basketball games going on over here. And what are these guys doing? Are they having a fist fight? Are they selling drugs? And it was like, it was pretty, it was pretty chaotic. And, uh, and I bring my Christian friends. They go, oh, I'd love to come with you. And I'm like, and I always think I'm going to have to protect my kids from my Christian friends. 
Because my Christian friends are going to listen to their words. Because they don't, they haven't been with them for years. So they're like, don't use that word. Don't do this. Don't do that. I'm like, dude, just chill. And I'd have to tell them, like, my kids don't, you know, they talk Egyptian. They speak another language. Like, but the problem isn't their words. The problem is the heart. So you're going to have to look past the words. Because I started out, after, after I was there a year, I decided that I'd visit every parent. <laughs> that lasted one week. I went for the first parent's house. Bill remembers all of these stories. Like, I have the first parent house, and it's like, I'm in a little, after my two-hour thing, I'm going to go visit the parents. So I'm like, hey, Johnny, where's your house? Let's go to your house. And there's mom. She's got a needle in, the, in her arm. And I get there, and there's no electricity in the house. And now I realize why the two brothers are just angry. <laughs> they don't have a dad, and mom's a drug addict. Oh, starting to be very clear. Went to the second house. Same situation. I'm like, okay, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I realized, like, the reason why they behave like that is because they're angry and no one's actually teaching them family skills. The very first night, I broke up five fist fights. The very first night, there was two of us. I was jumping on high school kids. <laughs> like, I was much in better shape in those days. <laughs> Of my mechanic days, thank God. You know, and we just made a rule no guns and no knives in the gym, and it was like we had all this stuff. But my point is this is that is that my kids were really good kids. Like if you didn't know them, you would think they were gangsters. But when you got inside and you listened past the F word, and I realized after a while that the F word was actually a wall. Like the effort was a wall, like to keep the religious people out. It's kind of hard to explain. They were afraid of holy people because they'd been judged a lot. So then they, instead of, they didn't think they could be as good as you wanted them to be, so instead they reacted and became worse. And, and what I'm getting at is that our, our home should be a place that we can actually have safe communication. And I'm listening past your words. And if you go, Dad, I hate you. I'm like, I know you don't hate me. I'm, I'm just thinking, okay, I know you don't hate me. But you, are, you have a lot of, you have some challenges with me. Okay, what is it you're trying to tell me? You're trying to tell me it feels, when people say things like, I'm going to kill myself. I hate you. You know, this, I'm never going to, those never hate, those kind of words. Those are saying, this is how big it feels inside of me. You're not saying, I hate you. I just, I feel like the, my world's coming apart. Okay, what's going on? This girl broke up with me, man. I just like, you know, and I'm thinking, you're 15, man. I'm thinking, you're 15. I'm thinking, you'll love again. Don't worry about it. But I can't, that's not going to help my son. I need to connect with him. Like, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in his life. He needs me to go, I, oh, I understand you. Well, how did that make you feel? You know, it feels a little Danny Silkish, but it's real. Like, <laughs> Danny's been in my life most of my life, you know, even before he was a Christian. Like, how are you doing? I'm not doing dad. I'm not doing good dad. You know, she just thought, da, 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 da. yeah, wow. That. And I just begin, I hate her guts, you know. Da, da, da. And I know he's not saying he hates her. He's saying he's hurting her. 
And I could go, you shouldn't hate people. Or maybe he cusses while he's telling me a story. You know we don't cuss in this house. Come on, guys, that's for another time. Right now, let's engage the issue. What's going on? You're really hurting. It's not like, you know, the Bible says about hate. You know, if you get bitterness, like that's, we're going to have that conversation, but we're not going to have it right now. Right now, we're going to talk about what's going on in you. We're not going to have the, you know, the, the grammar police are not coming. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? No. When somebody gets older, of course, we're like, hey, you know that? Those words are, you're, you're bigger than that. You should know better than use those words. But So communication happens lots of ways. And sometimes, have you ever heard, have you ever been on the side, on one side or the other of this? I didn't say that. <laughs> no, but your face did. <laughs> your face talks for you. <laughs> right? I love you. Your tone talks for you right? Your attitude talks for you. What I'm getting at is that we are master attorneys in which it's like we signed a contract like I only said these words. Those not, listen, most of the way we communicate has very little to do with words. When, you know, you can sit at the table with some, I can sit at the table with Bill and, you know, we're in meetings a lot with other people, with the others, (laughs) And they'd be talking like, I've been with Bill a long time. I know what Bill's thinking most of the time. Sometimes not, because he plays poker really well. He's like... But you can tell somebody how somebody feels about what people are saying by just looking in their eyes. They're communicating. I, I'm saying... When we talk, when we communicate in our families, we're not just saying words. We're communicating through the way we look at our kids. The way we acknowledge that we're good with that. Sometimes in our plight to be polite or diplomatic, we use words that say one thing and expressions that say another. And if our kids grow up in our home, they know we're not being honest. Are you with me? And I'm saying, like, not, it's funny, uh, Abraham Lincoln had this, uh, he was interviewing for a particular position, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which position it was, but like a cabinet position. And he was interviewing all these guys, and this one guy was super qualified. And, uh, and he was interviewing with a couple, three or four other people on the interview team for this guy. And this one guy was like so much more qualified than everybody they had interviewed that day. And so, you know, when the man left, everybody said, well, he's our man. And Lincoln said, I don't like him. And they said, why don't you like him? He said, I don't like his faith. (laughs) And they said, you don't like his faith? What do you mean you don't like his faith? What can he do about his faith? And he said, he's 40 years old. By now, he should, able, he should be able to control his face. And if a man can control his face, I don't want him on my cabinet. Well, Lincoln was saying, the man was communicating. He was saying one thing with his words, but he was communicating another with his face. And Lincoln picked up the incongruity and said, I can't have a man who can't control his face. I'm simply saying, when we're home, some of our problems with communication 
And communication tends to be the most critical issue in, in relationships and in a marriage. We're like, I said that and she said that. And I'm like, I, you know, I, was, I did tons of marriage counseling, Dan and I, the first three years I came here. And I'm like, I'm trying to work through, like, he said that. Did he say that? Yeah, he said that, but he didn't mean it. How do you know he didn't mean it? Because of the way he looked. And then, like, we're going through this conversation, and I'm having him talk to her, and her talk to him. And then, you know, a half hour into the conversation, I see what she means. Like, he says things, but his face says something else. And that incongruency drives her crazy because she knows his heart's really not behind his words. Are you with me? So I'm saying communication is so important. Um, Proverbs 18.2 says this, A fool does not delight in understanding, but in, only revealing, but, in, but only in revealing his own mind. This is really important communication. You know, if you're just waiting for the other person to stop so you can share your side of the story, how many of you know that's not a dialogue? That's a discussion. A discussion is where I defend myself and you defend yourself. A dialogue is we're listening to each other to bring closure. Are you with me? A fool doesn't delight in understanding. He's not trying to understand you. He's just trying to make his point. The goal of communication is not agreement. Let me back up. The goal of communication is not we, let's talk till we agree. If, we, if the goal of communication is agreement, then that means there has to be a loser and a winner. You are wrong and I'm right. The goal of communication is understanding. I don't have to agree with you when we get done talking, but I do need to understand how you got to that decision. Are you with me? Okay. When you're talking to your kids or one another, there's a lot of young people in here, if you've forgiven somebody, you can't bring up, you can't bring up the past again. In other words, if I throw my underwear on the floor and Kathy's like, pick up your underwear, ha, huh? you always pick up, yeah, all you do is those crummy underwear, and by the way, those brown stripes, I don't like them. So, you know, it's like that kind of thing. And I'm like, I am so sorry, I've been, you know, so dishonored you, I have not respected you, and I pick up my underwear, and six months later, I leave my underwear again on the floor. After, and I say, to, well, let's go back. In the first incident, I say, Did you, will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Okay. Six months later, I leave my underwear on the floor again. Here's what she can't say. You leave your underwear on the floor all the time. You can't say that because you forgave me for the last time I did. From then on, from there back, that's all that evidence is erased. File locked, file closed. I can only deal with you in the incident that we're in. Are you with me? I'm saying forgiveness rewrites our history. No, it's a good word. So when we're interacting, we can't bring in our past crap into our present situation. We just deal with what we're doing right now. Now, obviously, if this has been going on for years and you've never talked about it, and this is the first conversation, of course, we're going to, hey, you do this all the time, da-da-da, okay. Now, once we, okay, would you forgive me? And I'm saying, someplace in the conversation, we're going we're to actually have a proactive, will you forgive me? Ah, well, sure, of course. No, no. Will you forgive me? I'm asking you, I'm not asking you if you want to. I'm asking you, will you will 
Will you write me in your will? I will, Chris Valentin, forgiveness. And forgiveness, how many know, repentance restored to the pinnacle. Forgiveness restores me to the high place. Now think about this, guys. How important is forgiveness? It, let's say that I'm not moral as a... I'm, I'm in high school and, I, and I, I'm not, I don't have a purity plan. And I sleep with many girls. And finally I get married. And I'm like, oh, I find Jesus. And I'm like, Lord, forgive me. Now, I have kids and they become teenagers. And I notice that my son is beginning to dabble in the same areas I dabbled in. Now, how many understand that if I don't realize that forgiveness didn't just wash away my sin, it restored me to the high place as if I never did that. Then I actually can't lead my son further than my worst day. Because I think, well, how can I tell him he's doing something wrong when I did the same thing as a kid? Listen, that attitude means that as we, our legacy gets worse and worse. The longer, the longer our legacy grows, my father can't correct me because he did these things, plus he did these things. And, I, and, then, and so he can't correct me because, because he did that. And then I, I go and I can't do this because my... And pretty soon we can't correct anybody for anything because we have a generation of people who have failed. Are you with me? And we're all, we're all like standing on our failures instead of standing on a redeemed place. And what I'm getting at is it's costing our children the lack of confidence that we have when we come to our children and say... Hey, that thing right there you're doing, let me t- let's talk about that. Listen, that thing will kill you. And I speak as if I had never done it. I'm not talking about from a place of compassion. I'm obviously compassionate. But I mean, I speak with confidence as a man who comes with a clean slate. Not as a prisoner talking through the prison bars to another prisoner. Does that make sense? Um, communication. S- simple things like... Raising your voice, calling names, making threats, escalating the tension serves only to cause the person to defend themselves. So, and let me say this, if you're a parent, when you raise your voice, when you start yelling, you go from parent to peer. If my son raises his voice, or my daughter raises their voice, by the way, I don't want them to. We don't allow disrespect in our home, but you get the idea. I don't have to raise my voice to actually show them that I'm more powerful. You know why? I am more powerful. I got the key to your car, to your bedroom door. This depends on how old you are. You get the point. Like, I don't have to raise my voice to match yours because... I actually have power without raising my voice. And here's the challenge. When you have little kids, I remember this is, uh, and, and I understand, you know, I, I t- moms especially, God bless moms, right? If I was a mom, I'd be screaming all the time, get your butt in here! <laughs> so we have total mercy. I get it. I understand. But I'm saying we can train our children that we actually don't respond until our voice gets to a certain level. So we go, he never listens till I yell. That's because you don't do anything till after you yell. So it is a trained response. If little Johnny touches the TV or whatever, and I don't know what we're supposed to do these days. I know what I do. I know what I do my grandkids come over. Touch that again, I'll break both your hands and then your arms. <laughs> then I'll call CPS on myself. 
of course, I'm being funny. But my point is, is that if I say to Johnny, Johnny, don't, don't touch Timmy, Johnny's too. And, and he's learning right from wrong, right? There's a good tree and a bad tree in the garden. He's learning right from wrong. And I go, Johnny, don't touch the TV. And he goes. <laughs> now, how many of you know, if he touches it by accident, well, it's not a heart issue, we're going to have a different response. But if Johnny goes, yeah, I know you just told me not to touch it. That's why I'm touching it. How many of you know, the second time if I go, Johnny, I said don't touch it. How many understand that if the next time he touches it, I give him a spanking or whatever, time out for 12 years or whatever you do with the time <laughs> trying to negotiate with a two-year-old, I don't understand that at all, but spanking just so cavemanish, but it just works. <laughs> I'm saying the reason why Johnny stops touching the TV after I yell is because he knows after I yell, I'm going to actually take action. If I go, I speak once, and the second time I take action, Johnny learns really quickly that past one time, he gets a warning, and the second time, if he touches it, he understands there's consequences. Now I actually don't live in a house where we scream at each other to get people to do something, because Johnny, from the time he's little, knows that dad and mom respond after a warning. Does that make sense? So I'm saying most places where we're screaming at each other, well, it never does what I tell them to do till I yell. It's because you taught them that you don't respond till you yell. Good verse. Um, a gentle answer turns away wrath with a harsh word. This is all about, for me, communication. It's like one of the things we do is when somebody comes in angry, my daughter comes in angry, my son comes in angry, I can pull the God, the God card. I can pull the dad card. I say, you know, you don't yell in this house. That's probably a good conversation to have later. Right now, let's de-escalate the anger and have a conversation. Okay, what's going on? Okay, that's great. And I'm not doing things to make the person matter. I remember uh, I grew up, I told you, in a very dysfunctional home with two rageaholics. My mother didn't get it right the second time. Thank God they're both believers but now um but my sister so my dad would come home mad and would you know come in the room is like pick up his clothes you know slamming doors and this is, he didn't actually need a reason to be mad he was just mad my sister would go you can't tell me what to do and i would just run for cover i'm like the guy's mad <laughs> if you're gonna say you can't tell me what to do wait till he's chillaxing and then go to his chair and go, I don't think you should tell me what to do. That probably won't go very well either. But when the man is out of control, the idea is to de-escalate. So when he'd come in my room and slam my door and scream and yell at me, I'm like, probably not looking for my opinion right now. Probably not a great opportunity to tell him what I think about what he just said. And what I'm getting at is that, is that, when we're trying to have a conversation and someone's angry, that's not the time to make your justice point. That's the time to de-escalate the person until we have an actual, we go from a discussion to a dialogue. Are, are you following me? Okay. How are we doing? Um, communication dysfunctions. I want to tell you about, about how many do I wrote down. I just had this thing in the middle of the night last night. Fifteen of them. Let me give you quick ones. 
Sensitive Sally. She hides behind, I'm so fragile, you hurt my feelings, and her motto is, don't tell me the truth because I can't handle it. I'm simply saying, these are ways that people keep from actually getting to the root of their issues because when you try to talk to them, they just break out and cry. Or they break out, it's like, I'm instantly like, I'm just so fragile, you just can't even tell me the truth. Number two, Mad Max. He uses rage to keep, from t- keep anyone from telling the truth. He intimidates you with his anger. So you go to tell Mad Max, hey, da-da-da, and he just gets mad and screams and yells. And what's he doing? He's actually protecting himself from actually being wrong. He doesn't let anybody talk to him about his stuff because he protects himself with this wall called anger. Are you with me? Suicidal Sam. I'll kill myself, and you will blame yourself the rest of your life if you don't let me control everything about our lives. Anyone ever met a suicidal Sam? Oh, yeah, I had several of them in my youth group over the years. It's like they use the threat of suicide on anybody who tries to get into their life. A good thing to do with those guys, call the police and let them go in the lockup for a little while. Number four, Larry the Liar. You never make a point with Larry because he will say anything to win an argument, whether or not it's true. You ever have a conversation with someone, you're trying to get to the point, and they just they change the story so that they'll be right? Are you guys okay? Yeah. Number five, it's my fault, Walt. <laughs> Walt interrupts every conflict with, it's all my fault, to shut down the conversation so we won't have to face the truth. Number six, I stay mad, Chad. I let everybody know if you confront me, it will affect our relationship for the next hundred years. No one wants to tell Chad he's doing something wrong because it's too expensive to tell him the truth. Lisa the loudmouth. A conversation with Lisa is a community affair because she will start rumors about your attempt to talk to her. Everyone's afraid to talk to Lisa because half the church will be mad at you by morning. Number eight, Valerie the victim. She always paints herself as the victim in every conflict. She knows how to build the drama triangle. I'm the victim, you're the persecutor, and I'm crying out for a rescuer. Number nine, Bigot Bob hides behind race, sexual orientation, or his handicap to keep people from telling him the truth. It's always about, no, you're doing this because of my color, my this, you're prejudiced about that. It's like, no, actually, I'm just talking to you because what you're doing is destructive. Number 10, Betty the boss. Betty uses rank to shut down any conversation in which she's clearly wrong. I'm the boss here. You ever talk to somebody and they just use their rank to keep you quiet? How about 10? Number 11, smart art. Art hides behind a huge brain and tries to intimidate his opponent with big words and heady rhetoric that usually has little to do with the conflict. (laughs) Have you ever talked to someone who's like super smart and you're trying to like have a real conversation about stuff that's going on and when you get all done you have no idea what he said? (laughs) Uses words this long, just happens to use those words when he's in a conflict. Have you ever noticed that? Why? Because he's hiding behind his big brain. And the point is these are all walls in which people refuse to actually get to the root of the issue because they're afraid. 12, the Lori story. Lori tells long stories to deflect conflict that take forever to complete 
and that are often impossible to follow. Nobody wants to confront Lori because it takes three hours, and that's the point. Have you ever had a conversation with someone when you're trying to talk to them about some stuff you have issues with, and like, it's just like, she, when she starts talking or he starts talking, the story goes on and on and on, and you're like, it winds through the bushes and the brush and the years and the people, and by the time you get all done, you're like, what the crap did she just say? I have no idea what you just said, but whatever it is, I won't be doing that again. And what I'm getting at is you think this is, this is kind of funny because we all, like some of us are thinking like, it's her right there. <laughs> and some of us are remembering it's you and some of us are remembering a, a conversation we had. But what I'm saying is like these things are done on purpose. People deflect conflict because they are afraid of getting to the real root of what's going on. How about this one? Twist the truth, Ruth. Ruth always twists how or when things happen to deflect responsibility or wrongdoing. He changes the chronology of things. You're like, that happened and that happened, but not like that. Some of you are like... How about this one? Silent Violet. She just sits in the chair and says, I don't know. Why did you say that? I don't know. She refuses to engage because she doesn't want to risk being wrong. You ever talk to somebody, it's a one-way conversation? Like, so, Violet, you know, when you said that, it really hurt my feelings. Why did you say that? I don't know. Well, do you remember saying that? I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever said that to anybody before? I don't know. Just lock up, close the refrigerator, and stay in there forever. How about remember November? Remember November brings up things in a conflict that you did 10 years ago. And the point is, you have something wrong with me, but I have something wrong with you too. Not anything that's relevant to what we're talking about, but I have something wrong. How many of you ever talked to somebody that they just dig up things? Like, and when you were 12, you know, you're like 40. Like, I don't even remember that. Well, you should. It hurt me just as bad as you're hurting. You're saying I hurt you? Well, you hurt me way back here. Never told you about it. Want to save it up for, you know, a special occasion. And my point is, is that if we're going to have real conversations with real people and have real closure and have healthy relationships, we got to scrap this stuff. Listen, if you're one of these 15 or the 50 more that I didn't think of, you know, it's like scrap the tools and have a real relationship. When somebody comes and goes, hey, I have an issue with you, it's not the end of the world. You're not going to die. Well, what if I'm wrong? Then you forgive one another and you move on. But the problem is, is that we, we have... We have relationships in which we have crap stacked on top of crap, stacked on top of crap, because whenever you try to talk to some of these folks, they just go on forever or defend themselves. It's like, can we just actually have closure? How about if we have a marriage where we just get rid of all the crap, we have a real conversation, and then we work to, to actually heal our dysfunctional relationship because we know that no matter what we find in conversation, Jesus is big enough to heal it. Are you with me? Now, that means this. If you punish people for being wrong, 
then these tools, whatever tools people use to protect themselves, you've created a culture where it's not okay to be wrong and they're gonna be punished for it, so people are gonna do whatever they can do to protect themselves. I don't know why my wife always lies. I do. That, your face, Lincoln would never hire you. Like, if it costs a lot to be honest in your home, don't be surprised that people lie. Because if they tell the truth, they're going to go to prison forever. Especially when the punishment isn't equal to the problem. It's like, all right, you know, I'm not punishing you because you did that thing. I'm punishing you because you lied to me. I lied to you because I thought you were going to kill me. And watch what you do to mom when she does something little and you punish her for the next three weeks. So it's a lot easier just to pretend I didn't do it. And I'm saying our houses should be a place of safety. When my daughter, my son, my wife, my spouse says, I failed, it shouldn't be like the end of the world. It's like, all right. And there should be, obviously, consequences with our children because they're learning all that. But it shouldn't be like, we should, our kids shouldn't be, I'm terrified to talk to dad because if I do, the punishment is going to be like forever. Are you with me? You know, if you have a, if, okay, let's see. I want to see if I want to say this. If your culture is people tend to lie to you, it's not okay that they lie. Let me just say that clearly. But it might be that you're a punisher. It might be that telling you the truth is super costly. You know, I uh, work a lot in Romania uh, um, a lot of years ago. And the Romanians grew up in communism where it wasn't just illegal to be a Christian. Like, you were going to be put away in prison. Consequently, how many of you, if, you were, if a communist came to your house and said, is your son a Christian, and your son was a Christian, and you knew that he was going to carry it off to prison to be, to, uh, for being a Christian, how many of you are going to tell the communist leader that your, son's a prison, that your son's a Christian? That's good. Three of you were honest. I wouldn't. I lie my face off. Is your son a Christian? Nope. Heathen. Come over here. You wouldn't take out the garbage can. Ever read the Bible? Bible. What's that? I'm saying what happens is, is that people learn to, to lie because the, the penalty for telling the truth is so severe. Are you with me? But what happens is, is that after the communists leave, now they have to learn how to actually be people who tell the truth because they grew up in a culture that so punished people for lying. I'm sorry, for the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. A couple more things about communication will be done, okay? Don't use names that hold your kids in something like this. Oh, you'll always be my little girl. I remember, and I'll tell you, I'll end with this, this story. Some years ago, a pastor and his wife, who I knew well, this is many years ago, the first year or two I was here, they, um, they had a problem with their daughter, who I also knew was a, she was a woman with uh, two kids of her own. And so I, I knew the whole family, and the daughter had finally got to a place where she wouldn't let mom and dad even come over. They just said, Mom, I don't, I don't want you to come over anymore. And we're a very close family, and mom and dad were very hurt. And, and so, you know, so they, they talked to me, and, you know, I, I'd, I'd give them some counsel, like, well, maybe try this, try that. 
and nothing seemed to really help. And so one day they were coming in for a conference, a leader's advance or something, and they were all coming. And they said, any chance we could sit with you in your office like my daughter, her husband, me and my husband, and kind of sit with you? And I'm like, that'd be great. Let's do it. So we, we broke off from the conference, and we went into my office, and you know, all very nice people. These were all very nice people. And, and so we're sitting there, and, you know, and I'm trying to like, okay, what is going on here? Like, like the daughter's response is so not their family. Mom, I don't want you around. Mom, I don't, Mom and Dad don't come over to my house anymore. I'm like, this is weird. So, so anyway, so I, I already heard parents' stories, so I'm like, so what's going on, you know? Uh, Mary, what's, what's happening? It's like, and she starts to try to describe to me what it's like when mom comes over. And mom leans over in her conversation, like four minutes into it, puts her hand on her knee and goes, you'll always be my little girl. And what she was trying to explain to me is that when mom comes over, she goes, you don't wash the dishes right. You should be changing the kids' diapers way before that. And mom comes in and actually just takes over the house and makes her feel like a little girl. And while she's telling me that mom, she hasn't got to the point yet that mom makes me feel like a little girl, mom leans over, puts her hand on her knee and goes, you'll always be my little girl. I go, here's the problem. Mom was a great mom and was fulfilled when Mary, her name, real name is Mary, when Mary was 10. Mom needs Mary to stay 10 because mom doesn't feel very successful in life anymore. So she needs to reduce Mary to 10 when they get together so mom can again feel the role that mom filled when Mary was in dependent mode, but now Mary's in independent mode. So she reduces Mary to a 10-year-old so she can feel alive. And I looked at her, and this is going to be the simplest thing, but we've all done this before, right? I said to her, I said, hey, stop, stop. Don't talk. Nobody talk. Because I get it. Like, I, the whole thing, like, whoo, it unfolds to me. I go, she, look in my eyes. She is not your little girl. She is a woman. And she goes, well, she'll always be. I go, no, 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 listen. She is not, she is not your little girl. She is a woman with three children. She is 35 years old. She's been a mom for 15 years. She is not your little girl. And she looked at me, and she started weeping. And she said, oh, my God, she's not my little girl. I said, she's not. And you would have think that someone just told her that she had cancer. Because for the first time in 15 years, she realized her daughter is a woman. And her daughter leaned over and said, Mom, for 15 years, I've been telling you, I am not a little girl. They left hugging. I saw them at the next leader's advance, which was six months later. She said, you would not believe our relationship. We're just hugging. My, I'm, my daughter's over all the time. I'm over her house. And she said, I had... She said, you're not going to believe this, but when I looked at my daughter, I saw a 10-year-old. I said, because you needed a 10-year-old. She said, I know, I realize that now. Sometimes we don't let people grow up 
not because we don't love them, but because that was the place in life where we were successful. And therefore, we can't let go of that season because we can't find success in the next season. I said I was going to be done, but I want to say this one other thing that goes with it. Don't live your life through your children. I always wanted to play basketball when I was in school. I went out three times, got cut every time. I love basketball. My grandkids, I have one grandkid who still plays basketball. I tell him, you're my favorite. <laughs> but here's my point. If you're a great basketball player, but your son wants to play the piano, he doesn't feel like he has permission to play the piano because you need to live through him a life you never got to live. The pressure of living through your kids will make you feel alive and will tether them to a dream that is not theirs. Amen. Would you stand? Okay. I saw this in a vision, and I'm not joking. When I was using those 15 things, if any of you saw that, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray that God forgives you and that he gives you the courage. Listen to this. The grace, in other words, the ability to actually be able to have a conversation where you bring closure to your relationships. If you saw yourself, not someone else, yeah, my brother does that, my husband does that, you're not confessing other people's sins, you're confessing your own. Would you just raise your hand, and I'm just going to pray for you right there. You could just leave your hands up. Lord, I just pray for all these folks right here. I pray that you would give them forgiveness. Just say, I receive that. That you would give them grace. Say, I receive that. That you would give them the skills. Say, I receive that. To change their relationships. In Jesus' name, no longer would they be under the dysfunction of fear, using tools as walls to keep Holy Spirit from going deep in their lives and finding great joy and great closure from having clean relationships with people. Lord, I pray that tonight you would heal marriages, that tonight you would heal sons and daughters, relationships with mothers and fathers and with one another. In Jesus' name, that you would go deep in the heart of people tonight. Lord, that you would take this orphanage that we call the world and that you would make it into the Father's house. That you would teach us the principles of the Father. That we could actually come to coldness, God. That we could actually come to closure. That we could have beautiful relationships and beautiful homes and beautiful marriages with beautiful people. Lord, give us wisdom and how to interact and communicate. Teach us how to read the eyes of people, how to look into their souls and say, I think I can help with that. Lord, let us be people of great compassion too. Let us, be, let us create houses, households and houses and homes where people can actually share their stuff and not be punished, where our children want to come home and tell their dad and their mom, I failed today. I need help. I need your... I need, I need forgiveness. Lord, I just pray for that in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just put your hand on your heart for a minute. Proverbs talks about a heart of wisdom.
God, I pray for every person in this room that you would give us a heart of wisdom. No matter where we are in life, that you would cause us to go deeper. That we would be people that have clean hands and a pure heart. Say this, say, Jesus, give me clean hands and a pure heart. That I could have clean relationships with you and with the people around me. Lord, give me insight into my own heart and into the heart of others so that I could touch people with compassion and with wisdom and with love. And I could help them bring closure to their pain. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.